0: morning we are continuing, we actually have two more uh, sermons in this uh, series that we've been in that we've called The Gospel According to Nehemiah. Uh, this uh, book of Nehemiah tells the story of God gathering his people back to himself after their exile. So they've been exiled uh, by the Babylonians who were then conquered by the Assyrians and then they're able under the leadership of a man named Ezra and a man named Nehemiah to come back to Jerusalem where they rebuild their home. They've rebuilt the temple. They've now finished the walls so that they can live with, uh, uh, with safe boundaries. Now they've, uh, they've renewed their covenant. Remember, they, we looked at those passages where they found the Bible again. They found the book of the law. They read it. They gave themselves to God. Over the last couple of chapters, we have essentially two chapters of just wall-to-wall names is they list out the people who've come back into Jerusalem to resettle into the city. And so this morning, our reading is from Nehemiah chapter 12, starting in verse 27. We'll be reading uh, Nehemiah 12, 27 through 43. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from, the vil- and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Mushulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemiah, and Jeremiah. And certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives Shemaiah, Azarel, Millilai, Gilali, Ma'ai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half the people, on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs and those who gave, of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests of Eliakim, Messiah, Miniman, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jez- Jezriah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, sometimes you come to a passage like this in the Old Testament, you see all of these names and places. Uh, You can wonder, as a preacher, what is the point Uh, of this what's the thread of this text what is it that makes what what does God have for us in this passage and then you come uh, to a verse like verse 43 and the theme of the passage just kind of hits you over the head listen to this again and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy the women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away I think Nehemiah wants us to know that they're rejoicing, uh, that this is a story about joy, a story of exuberant, overwhelming, overflowing joy, joy that grows out of uh, the temple in Jerusalem out to the walls of the city that echoes off the mountains around it, even being heard by their neighbors. This is a story about joy. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul uh, asked the young church in Galatia this question. He asked them in Galatians 4.14, what has happened to all of your joy? What's happened to all your joy? And I think if you're anything like me, that is a threatening question. It's a question uh, that is a diagnostic is pretty searching. What happened to my joy? What's happened to our joy? If the Christian life is meant and intended to be a life of deep and lasting joy, does that match our experience of the Christian life? What has happened to our joy? Maybe uh, we've grown too cynical for joy, right? You might be somebody who's uncomfortable with the idea of exuberant joy. You find it almost embarrassing uh, to, to let yourself experience real gladness, deep joy. Maybe we're too distracted for joy, you know, too busy chasing after other things, too busy uh, filling our eyes and our minds and our thoughts with lesser things, and so we're too distracted to really enter into joy. Maybe we've become too weighed down by life, by the burdens that we carry, the sorrows that we endure, the responsibilities that we shoulder, to really experience childlike freedom and joy. So I think we do well to ask ourselves the question that Paul asked the Galatians all those years ago, what has happened to all of your joy? I found myself uh, the other day talking with somebody and they were asking, you know, as, as people do, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? How are you doing? And I had to say, well, honestly, I'm a bit exhausted right now. We just got done with Holy Week and then the big celebration of our five-year anniversary. And and what I said to this person was, you know what? I'm good, but I'm tired. I'm looking forward to summer. I'm looking forward to a little bit of a break. My kids are out of school, all of that. And as I talk to people, I hear that from many. I'm ready for a break. I'm ready for summer, especially kids getting off of school uh, we're ready for a break, but the truth is that summer, just taking a break in and of itself, uh, doesn't necessarily lead to joy, right? We all know what it is to be, to be miserable on vacation, right? To, to finally get the rest that you think you need and then find that it doesn't satisfy. We need something more than a vacation. We need to learn, again, the roots and uh, how to experience gospel-centered joy. And so this morning from this passage, we're going to look at joy, We're going to look at the roots of joy, the claims of joy, and then finally the discipline of joy. First, the roots of joy, which we see here and really throughout the Scriptures, that the root of joy for the Christian is gratitude for what God has done, gratitude for God's grace. You know, really, by uh, by the time we get to the New Testament, when Paul gets to talking about worship, he starts to use a set of words almost interchangeably. Uh, The words worship, joy, and thanksgiving all kind of do uh, duty talking about the same basic uh, idea. That Christian worship creates joy out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Here in uh, in this passage, when when it tells us that Nehemiah appointed two choirs to give thanks he appoints these two choirs to give thanks. We, see, we meet them for the first time in verse 31. The, what gets translated in English is two great choirs to give thanks. In Hebrew, is just one word. He says, I appointed two thanksgivings. Uh, now, it's clear from the context that what he's calling here thanksgivings are groups of people tasked with singing. So, choirs. But what they do, what they're doing in worship is so identified with giving thanks that he just calls them for short. These are thanksgivings. These are, are thanksgiving people who are appointed to give thanks for what God has done. We see this uh, same language carry over uh, in the New Testament. Uh, to look at just one place, we can look at, uh, at Colossians, uh, where Paul says, let me find it here, um, Paul Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, he urges the people singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. That over and over the pattern of worship in both Old and New Testament is that God acts, God does something, and then the people respond with thanksgiving and worship, right? We see it when, uh, when Moses leads the people across the Red Sea, leading them out of slavery and into freedom, and then the waters crash down on Pharaoh's armies. And he and Miriam stand and write songs, celebrating what God has done. So God acts, God works, and then we respond with joy and with thanksgiving. Over and over, we see that pattern in the Psalms, right? God works, God does marvelous things, and then the people sing his praises. God acts first, we respond with joy. Because of the gospel, joy is always a response to what God has done, not something we have to drum up or do on our own. Right? Christians get into bad places when we believe that we know we're supposed to be joyful, and so we seek to manufacture joy. Right? That's what leads to hypocrisy. It's what leads to a kind of plastic, happy-clappy version of Christianity that doesn't take into account the realities of life life's hardships, its ups and its downs, right? If you you believe, well, I need to slap a smile on my face and be happy, that is not Christian joy. Christian joy always looks at the world as it really is. God never asks us to pretend that what's hard is not hard, what's sad is happy. No, Christian joy means taking the world as it is, full of sorrow and full of brokenness, but a world in which God is acting, a world in which God moves first and he moves towards us in Jesus. Right? That's why the people under Nehemiah are celebrating here. It's not that their lives haven't been full of sorrows. These are many of them the same people who were born in exile, who were born under a foreign master, who were born in Babylon. They're celebrating because God has done what he said he was going to do. God has gathered them back. God has intervened on their behalf. In a broken world, God has worked to save. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 31, I love this passage starting in verse 7 where God tells them what he's going to do. He says in verse 7, For thus says the Lord, so this was, came to them the, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah while they were living in exile in Babylon. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And then hear this promise. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Right? So he's saying, sing praises, give thanks because I will gather you back to to myself. And I will root you back in your land and then you'll praise me. And so what they're doing here is they're, they're saying, God, you did what you said you were going to do. When we were lost, when we were scattered, when we were homeless, you gathered us back to yourselves. You, you sheltered us. You kept your promise to us when we were without hope. And so now we'll do what you commanded us to do. We'll give you thanks. We'll praise you for it. We will give thanks. Friends, if you want to know joy, if you want to discover joy, if you want to track down that joy that, that seems to evade us so easily, you don't look at yourself, right? The, the, sheer, you know, the, the, the worst way to try to get happy or the worst way to try to experience joy is to start second-guessing yourself all the time. Well, man, why am I not more joyful? I should really be more joyful. Good things are happening. Why am I not joyful, right? You can't talk yourself into joy. Uh, you can't gaze at your own navel until you become a joyful person. If you want to know joy, you actually look away from yourself towards God and what he's done for you, right? If gratitude and joy are synonyms, then you begin to look to God and look to him with gratitude for what he's given you, for all that he's handed you, supremely what he's given you in new life in his son is the path to real joy. The whole world, uh, or at least uh, most of the U.S., uh, was struck by a story that happened last week. You may have seen the videos or heard the story of what happened in Atlanta, Georgia last week at the Morehouse College graduation. Uh, Have you seen those videos from Morehouse? Uh, When the speaker, uh, the graduation speaker, Robert Smith, uh, who is the wealthiest black man in America, gave the address to the graduating class at Morehouse. He was also given an honorary degree from Morehouse uh, that day. And so when he got up to give his address to the the graduating class, he said, you know what? The class of 2019 is my class too because I've gotten this degree. And so my gift to the class of 2019 is that I'm going to forgive, I'm going to pay all of the student loans of the entire graduating class, uh, which totals up to, they think, about $40 million dollars. There have been plenty of wealthy people that have given plenty of graduation addresses, right? If Bill Gates gave my graduation address, I'm wondering where he was uh, at loan, loan forgiveness time. <laughs> but this graduating class here on this day hears that my student loans are going to be forgiven. The debt is going to be canceled. It's going to be paid. You should go and watch the video and see the incredible joy on the faces of the graduating class, right? A graduation, as is, is, uh, Brother Larry prayed, is already a cause for celebration. But for these folks, many of them, even in that day of their great accomplishment, they're recognizing that they have, some of them, six figures of debt that so many graduate with. The New York Times uh, did a feature on this, and they interviewed uh, and followed one of the graduating class, a man named Shaquille Lampley. This is what they wrote. They said, at the end of a graduation party on Sunday night, Shaquille Lampley returned to his dorm room on campus. He opened the computer and stared at his student loan estimates. They totaled more than $200,000 in loans taken out by his mother, covering six years in school. He says, quote, I just kept looking at the number and thinking to myself that this would cripple me for life, said Mr. Lampley, 24, who earned a degree in sociology. I am so grateful, and I am still in shock about this gift. Right For that graduating class, their graduation was, is no longer simply a celebration of their accomplishment or what they did, but it's now an, a celebration of the generosity of another, someone who at great personal expense canceled debts that they could not pay. So now when they look back at their graduation, they not only feel a sense of accomplishment, but a sense of gratitude. Right, friends, our debt before God is so much greater, even than a massive debt like $200,000. Our debt, the scriptures tell us to God, is an eternal debt, right? The debt of sin to an infinitely holy God. And in Christ, through his death on the cross, not only is the debt paid, not only does he cancel what we owe, but he actually gives us the inheritance of the Son of God, right? It's no longer just that we're to a break-even point, out of debt finally, but instead of just being out of debt, we have everything that belongs to Jesus, all of the Father's love, all of his righteousness, all of his affection, all of his promises, the presence of the Holy Spirit who will never leave us or forsake us, we have not only a forgiveness of a debt, but the, it's like the owner of the bank just unleashed the vault to us and showered us with riches. In the gospel, this is what motivates our joy, recognizing how much that we have received from God. You know, that was the issue in Galatia. We said that Paul wrote them asking, what has happened to all of your joy? Well, simply what happened in Galatia was, he tells us elsewhere, that having begun with the Spirit, having begun with God's grace, having begun with Christian life as a gift of God, you've proceeded in the flesh. You've proceeded under your own works, under your own abilities. right? That's what had cut in and choked out the joy of the Galatian Christians was that what began as a gift of God's grace, God's free acceptance and forgiveness, they had begun to continue in the Christian life as though it was all up to them, right? as though they were somehow forgiven by God's grace. But then their progress in the Christian life was about them, was about how hard they worked, how much they prayed, how how early they woke up, how many times they were at church in the week, that it was mostly owing to their own keeping of the law. And friends, that is a recipe for the destruction of joy in your life, right? You will either look at your life, your life with God, your life in the world. You you will either approach it and say, this is a gift from God that I did nothing to earn. Or you will look at it and say, I built this. I earned this. I did this. And if you look at your life, your life with God, your life before others is principally something that you've earned. It might make you prideful, but it will never make you joyful. But if you look at your life as something that is given to you as a free gift that costs the Son of God his life, then that is the fuel that can move a heart to real joy, to real gratitude, to real humility. That is the root of joy in this life. Secondly, let's look at what this passage tells us about the claims of joy what joy claims about the world, and that is that the world belongs to God. That this world, as it is right now, belongs to God. We read, uh, is our call to worship in your bulletin, uh, this section from Psalm 48, which Psalm 48 describes uh, Israel worshiping God through circling around the city of Jerusalem and singing songs. Right, if you look, it's right there in your bulletin, the very first section of your bulletin. Psalm 48 commands, walk around Zion, which is a synonym for Jerusalem, and count her towers, take note of her strong fortification, that you may tell of them to the next generation, for this is what God is like. He is our God forever and ever, and he will guide us forever. So that, uh, Psalm 48, sets the tone for what Nehemiah has the people do here. They set up the two choirs in two groups. Ezra takes one of them, and he takes another one. And they start at the southern end of the city, and one goes up to the west, one goes up to the east, and they walk along the top of the wall, and then they meet in the northern part of the city right around the temple. And so they're walking around Jerusalem, singing and praising God, and then they gather in the temple, and they begin praising God back and forth. And this is a symbolic way of marching around the city, going to the temple, and saying, this city belongs to God. This city belongs to God because he lives here. He lives in the temple. This is where he promised that he would make his home with us. And he's rebuilt this city and he's gathered his people here. This city belongs to God. The temple is his home. The walls are his walls. We are his people. The king is his king. This city belongs to God. And it doesn't stop there. It says that the joy of Jerusalem can be heard all around. Right, so you have this story of joy radiating out noisily from the temple to the walls to the neighbors, proclaiming that this city, and one day the entire world, belongs to God. That he owns it, that he created it, that he is redeeming it, winning it for himself. This world uh, belongs to our God. You know, there's a uh, today is one of the more little-celebrated Christian holidays. You may not have even known it. Um, it's a day that we celebrate as Ascension Day. We're told that Jesus, after uh, the resurrection at Easter, spent 40 days with his disciples, appearing to many people. And then on the 40th day, he, wrote, he uh, ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so Ascension Day uh, is the day that falls 40 days after Easter. So it always falls on a Thursday, but it's usually celebrated on a Sunday. Um, And it's a day when we celebrate the fact that Jesus is still king, right? That he rose and that now Jesus, as God and man, rules over creation, right? What does he tell his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? I'm the king. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, right? No longer are we just walking around the tops of Jerusalem saying Jerusalem belongs to God. But now we go where? To all nations, proclaiming to all people and all races and all languages that Jesus is the King. There's a, there's a tradition that actually reminds me of this passage uh, that used to be much more common. It still happens in some uh, English and Welsh churches. It's the celebration of what they call the beating of the bounds, it is a bizarre Christian practice uh, in which the parish priest uh, takes a stick. And followed out by a choir and the congregation, walks along the boundaries of their parish. So if, the, if, if it's the, the cathedral of a city, they walk around the boundaries of the city, hitting the ground to say, this is the boundary that God has given to us. This is the little part of Christ's kingdom that he's given to our care, that we're to look out for, that we're to tend to, that we're to care for, that we're to celebrate the resurrection in. And so then they pray, they pray for the crops, they pray for the fields, they pray for the neighbors, they pray for the residents. Just like Israel walked around uh, Jerusalem to say this land belongs to God, they walked through their neighborhoods, they walked through their towns to say this town belongs to God because Jesus is risen, because he's the king, it's his. So after church today, I'm going to take a stick and we're all, no, we're not going to do that, but it is, it is a cool practice. That would get interesting uh, responses from the neighbors. But they are celebrating that they have been rooted in their city, a city that belongs to God. And friends, this scene of them celebrating God in God's city points beyond this scene because this story has remarkable similarities to the way that the story of the scriptures ends. Right? This story of God with his people in his city, singing his praises around his temple is actually, in the book of Revelation, very close to the way the whole story ends. No longer in literal Jerusalem. In fact, I'll read it. It's from uh, it's Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 22. This is where the story is headed. In the New Jerusalem, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So this picture of God's people celebrating in Jerusalem, you know, this wasn't the end of the story for them. Actually, their life uh, from this moment on proceeds to get harder again, right? They've been brought back from exile. They've been established, but soon come the Greeks and then the Romans. Eventually, most of Israel will, uh, will abandon its God. They'll miss their Messiah when he comes in Jesus, right? The story still has more dark chapters ahead of it, yet to come. So they're celebrating what God has done. They're celebrating the goodness that he's given them. But this celebration is only a foretaste of that celebration. The celebration when joy finally swallows up sorrow forever. When joy has the last word and gladness has the final word. Where there's no longer a temple necessary. Because God lives with his people face to face in the new city. Friends, every bit of joy, every bit of good Vibrant, wholesome joy that we experience in this life is a foretaste of the joy that we are made for. Right? The best we get in this life is an appetizer of the feast that we are made to celebrate. So the good joys that we have, the joys of intimacy and the joys of friendship, and the joys of, of a job well done, and the joys of a great meal, all of those joys are made to be signs. Not that we would look at them and fall in love with the sign themselves, but so that they would push us forward to the thing, the thing itself, the thing that we long for, which is the fullness of joy with God in Christ forever. And friends, all of our counterfeit joys in this life, all of the addictions that we cling to thinking that our lives, if we're going to have any joy, you know, we, we may not get real joy, but at least we can get a little bit of comfort, a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of satisfaction, those addictions, what they do for us is they take away our appetite for real joy. They rob us of the desire for the consummation of joy. They numb our appetites so that we think we have what we need and we forget to look for what we were made for. I found myself saying something as a parent that my parents said to me and that, you, you know, you start saying things that you, man, now I'm saying that to my kids. Uh, when my kids start wanting uh, dessert before the meal, right, when they start wanting candy in the middle of the day, what do you say as a parent? You say, no, you'll spoil your appetite, right? You'll ruin your dinner. Because what happens? You eat sugar. If you eat sugar at five in the, in the afternoon before dinner, your body gets this sugar spike Right, And so you convince yourself you're no longer hungry. Right, You might eat, uh, I don't know, pick your, your uh, or whole roll of Starburst. And the sugar courses through your veins. And then when dinner time comes and you've got a good meal in front of you, you say, no, 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 I'm not hungry anymore. Right, I've got, Your body, your chemistry is telling you I've got enough sugar. But then what happens 30 minutes later? That's right. The sugar crashes, your energy crashes, and you're starving and there's nothing left to eat, right? So you tell your kids, don't eat, don't eat junk food. You'll spoil your dinner. And friends, that's the way that our addictions in this life work. It's the sugar spike. It's the, it's the junk food that convinces us we're not hungry anymore, just for a little while. I've got what I need. I don't need anything more. And then you miss out on the meal. You miss out on what you were made for, which is communion with God in this life and forever. That all of our joys are meant to propel us uh, to that great joy, and it's only when we see the joy that we're made for that we'll stop uh, chasing after the ephemeral. Easy for me to say, the ephemeral pleasures of this life. And then finally, uh, this passage points us to the discipline of joy, because true joy—it uh, seems counterintuitive—but it does take discipline. Look at verse 44. This is picking up where we stopped reading earlier. The rest of the chapter, the last three verses. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, that's the king, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Essentially, here's what's happening. On the day of their joy and celebration, they're making a commitment to set aside resources to pay for the priests and the Levites and the singers to continue to do this going forward. Right. So this is the discipline of worship. This is saying on this day where we feel like worshiping, on this day where everything is clear and we're glad and we're rejoicing and we're full of thanks, We're going to make plans for all those other days in the future when we may not feel like it, right? We're going to make provisions so that the priests can do the work, so that they can lead us in the worship, so that we can continue to gather. Because guys, if you wait to worship when you feel like it, you won't worship very much at all, right? Uh, Worship isn't primarily something you do when you feel like it, something you do when you feel joy. It's something that you do so that you will feel joy. Right, There are days, there are times in our lives where the last thing we want to do is to look out of our lives and look to God, whether it be in our personal communion with God through scripture and prayer, whether it be gathering together on a Sunday morning, there's sometimes it's the last thing we want to do. But this passage shows us that it's a rhythm in our lives, a commitment, and a discipline that says sometimes my heart gets to church ahead of me and I'm excited to be there and I'm ready, And other times my body has to just get there and I'll wait for my heart to catch up at some point Uh, because God has promised to meet us in certain places. He's promised to speak to us from his word. He's promised to feed us from his table. He's promised to minister to us through the gathering of his people. And sometimes it takes discipline. It takes discipline to seek joy where you know it can be found even when you're not feeling it in the moment. I love this image. The people celebrating God in Jerusalem. And it says what? They were known for their joy. That the neighboring villages, the neighboring towns said, what is that noise? What is that celebration that I hear coming from Jerusalem? There's something there. Something joyful and real. There's an incredible power to the witness of joy in our world. In a world that so often starved for joy. A world that's so often inundated with bad news. There is a tremendous uh, prospect for the church to witness to the kingdom of joy by, by our experience of joy, our public celebration of joy. I saw something this week. It actually was an event that happened in 2012 the Philadelphia Opera. Uh, there, was a, there was a movement, in, it was mostly with arts connected institutions in Philadelphia. Uh, they went on a, a series of public art exhibitions called Random Acts of Culture where they would take art out of the art galleries, the opera houses, the symphony halls where people are used to encountering it and take it out into the streets of Philadelphia. And one day in 2012, the Philadelphia Opera Company contracted with a larger choir and 650 professional singers making up a choir went into the Macy's Center in downtown Philadelphia. And they're wearing their civilian clothes, dressed just like anybody else. And they walked uh, through this Macy's. It's it's one of those giant uh, department stores with multiple levels, and you can look up, and there's just people all around. There's an organ uh, in this particular Macy's. Why, I do not know. And there, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somebody begins playing the Hallelujah Chorus on an organ, and there, in the hustle and bustle of downtown Philadelphia, this 650-member choir begins singing the Hallelujah chorus, Handel's Messiah. It's beautiful. You, you can find the video on YouTube. Some people are singing; you can tell they're a part of the choir. Others are just looking on, like, "What is happening?" Then they start to recognize what's happening, and they sing along. You know, if, if when they get to the part that everybody knows, um, they'll sing along. But it's just amazing to see right there in downtown Philadelphia, hundreds and hundreds of people singing, He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is and is called to be. Living our lives, dressed in our civilian clothes, out and about in the world with our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, just like everybody else. And yet, in concert, singing a song of joy singing a song of the reign of Jesus, bringing the rest of our neighbors into the worship, into the joy of King Jesus. The video on YouTube has been viewed some 9 million times. I apparently was one of the last people to see it. (laughs) You should see the comments. Normally, avoid the comment section on all Internet-based communication. But the comment section uh, under this video is just overwhelming. People saying, this brought tears to my eyes, this brought tingling to my spine. One person says, this is just beautiful. Another says, this is moving beyond words, it brought tears to my eyes, it gave me goosebumps, over and over again. What's noticeably absent from the comments under this YouTube video, are any of the normal complaints that people might have about Christianity in the public square? Anybody saying, who are you to impose your beliefs on me? Who are you to sing a song about Jesus in a public space? Because the joy and the beauty of the moment lures people and draws people into it instead of offending. Some of the comments, one was, I'm an atheist and I approve of this random act. Another wrote, I'm I'm a Hindu and I tearfully agree. Friends, as we sing the world towards the joy of the kingdom, the world will look and say it's joyful and it's beautiful and it's good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us. You are the king of joy. You are the God who in his resurrection has brought an end to all suffering and sorrow and death. Lord, we pray that you would bring your joy, the joy of your reign, more and more deeply into our hearts. We acknowledge that this life is full of sorrows. Each one of us suffers. Each one of us carries our own baggage. Each one of us carries our own heartbreak. But Lord, at the cross, you transformed uh, even the most heartbreaking and sorrowful symbol into a symbol of joy and life and gladness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would lead us towards the joy of your kingdom deepen the joy of the gospel in our hearts, deepen our gratitude for all that we've been given in Christ. Move us, Lord Jesus, hard-hearted though we are, towards deep and real and lasting joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.